All right, well, Psalm 34, I think, right? Yeah, Psalm 34. <laughs> Psalm 34. Um, famous passage, taste and see the Lord is good. Most of us are familiar with this passage. Um, that's why my slide today looks like a cooking show, uh, which I, I, <laughs> I kind of did that on purpose. I've seen a million YouTube channels with probably that same image uh, from Canva. But um, yeah, Psalm 34, taste and see the Lord is good. Um, that's why I have spices up there. So that's what we're going to be studying through. We're going to dive into the backstory to this psalm because there's not every psalm has um, details given as to where it came from, but this one does. And anytime a psalm gives um, exactly where the backstory comes from, I like to study into that because it gives more context to the psalm itself. We get to know where David's heart was, where his mind was, what his situation was when he wrote this. And it's very significant. It has a great deal of um, significance to the meaning behind this psalm. So we're going to dive into that a little bit. Um, and it's funny, as I was preparing this sermon, I was doing it for um, doing it for a dear friend, a, a, a kid I'm in, uh, mentoring, who um, is in an incredibly dark place. And that's what this psalm was supposed to be about, was taste and see that the Lord is good. But as the week unfolded, um, I am realizing that this is something we all need to hear right now. That as we are surrounded with the darkness, um, and for those of you who aren't um, big on the news, the Capitol was stormed by a group, um, uh, a guy wearing a buffalo outfit, actually. It's hard not to laugh when you see the images, um, but it, it is tragic. It's, it was um, dark. It was ugly. The Capitol was actually breached um, and completely taken over for a, a short period of time. Uh, five people have lost their lives at this point. Um, there are officers who are injured. There are um, many who are still recovering in the hospital. So um, really heavy, dark time. And uh, for those of us who follow the news, it's, it's kind of heavy. So um, this psalm should be an encouragement to us. And the reason it should be an encouragement to us is because what the world has to, has to offer in tasting and flavor is absolutely going to lead to um, weight, heavy, just darkness. And what God has to offer is always there regardless of the circumstances. And as we're going to see with David, he was very confident in God in some very dark circumstances. And so um, it should be encouraging on both on both ends. Uh, my main idea for this passage was experiencing God. It's kind of what taste and see means. Um, it literally means to um, taste what the Lord has to offer, and you will see that it's good. It's a very... Um, um, powerful statement. It's a very confident statement. David is saying, if you taste the Lord, you will see that what he has to offer is good. And with this young man that I've been um, mentoring, he's in a very, very dark place. He's never experienced God. He's trying to experience what the world has to offer. Um, and, and more than that, he's trying to experience literally what the enemy has to offer. Uh, he's just told me that just straight up. And a big part of that is he says that Christianity sucks. He says that Christians are hypocrites, Christians are terrible people, they say one thing to another, they're hateful, they're angry. Um, these are things that he believes, uh, and we see that parroted in our society, and of course there are people who claim the name of Jesus and do terrible things. Um, and, and we're all sinners, that's reality. I had to be honest with him, I was like, you know what, um, you've known me for a lot of years, we're good friends, um, understand that, um, yeah, you know me, I'm a sinner, right? Like, I suck, it's true, but so do you. Like, we're all fallen. So 
what this passage is claiming is that if you try the Lord, you will see that he is actually good, that there is actually good in existence, and that source is God. So um, the idea behind that experiencing, I get from the word, um, uh, Greek word gnosko, which is a word for knowledge um, that is used throughout the Bible, and it is specifically the word that imparts um, actual experience. So if you want to throw that slide up, Carson, um, it, it actually it means more than just knowledge. It means to learn to know, come to know, get a knowledge of, perceive, and even feel. It's an actual uh, prolonged primary verb. It has a lot more forward meaning than just simply knowledge. It's experiencing something. It's like the difference between knowing a burner that's cherry red is hot and having touched one and knowing that a burner is so hot. Like that's kind of the difference. I use that example because I learned that as a kid the hard way when I was about two. Um, and I still remember it. It's crazy. First memory. Good times. But uh, <laughs> got my dad to think for that one. Thanks, Dad. I think he's watching. Hi, Dad. <sighs> but that's the difference between knowledge, knowing something, and this gnosko word of experiencing something. When you've experienced something, it goes much deeper. It's real. It's very real. When you've experienced something, it means more to you than just knowing that it's true. Okay? Jesus uses the word gnosko when in Matthew chapter 7, he says something that has a lot of weight, a lot of weight to it. In Matthew chapter 7, he says, depart from me, for I never knew you. And uh, um, I'll use the CSB translation. Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. If you understand the context of what Jesus is talking about, he's talking about the judgment. So that's a lot of weight. That's heavy. I never knew you is gnosko. I never experienced you. You never experienced me. That's what he's going to say to those he casts into eternal judgment. This word has a lot of weight to it. It has a lot of meaning. And Jesus himself used it. And that's why I want to use it as sort of a setup for the story today of tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. Experience the Lord, and you're going to find that what he has to offer is good. Even if it's not the worldly standards of what looks, smells, tastes good, what you're going to discover is even when it's hard, it's actually good. It's actually good. So what's the backstory to this psalm? Uh, we find it in 1 Samuel 21.10, um, but the backstory is that David is running from Saul, King Saul. He had to do that quite a bit. Saul's son, Jonathan, is beginning to see that his father is trying to kill David. Uh, David and Jonathan were very, very close friends, so this bothers Jonathan. And David visits the priest Ahimelech, Ahimelech, who gives him some food and a very important sword, Goliath's sword which technically David won in battle, in a sense, but it doesn't belong to him. The priest Ahimelech gives it to him, though. Uh, David describes it as a sword that is unlike any other in the kingdom. It is unique. It is um, great. It is mighty. It's, it's a very well-crafted sword, and it's unlike any other in the kingdom. Considering Goliath was a giant, you can assume it was probably very large, um, though that's not necessarily known to my knowledge. But it's very significant sword, and it's unlike any other in the kingdom. And the priest gives this to him. Okay? And then we pick up in verse 10. David fled that day from Saul's presence and went to King Achish of Gath. But Achish's servant said to him, Isn't this David, the king of the land? Don't they sing songs about him during their dances? Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. 
David took this to heart and became very afraid of King Achish of Gath. Why do you think that was? Well, if you remember, and I didn't, I had to look it up. But if you remember, Gath is where Goliath came from. So David, running from King Saul with Goliath's sword, was like, I'll go to Gath. What? <laughs> like, you're going to walk in. You're the guy who killed their hero, their big giant who can't be beat with a rock. It's embarrassing. Literally cut Goliath's head off with Goliath's own sword. <laughs> like, it's, I don't know, it's mind-boggling to me. That's where he went. So he shows up to Gath, and the king Achish of Gath hears that David just entered his city. So David is concerned. Verse 13 says, So he pretended to be insane in their presence. He acted like a madman around them, scribbling on the doors of the city gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Look, you can see this man is crazy, Achish said to his servants. Why did you bring him to me? Do I have such a shortage of crazy people that you brought this one to act crazy around me? Is this one going to come into my house? I love reading Old Testament. It cracks me up all the time. No shortage of crazy people. But he's looking at his like, David sitting here drooling on his own beard, scribbling on the wall like a crazy man, previously previously married to the king's daughter, Saul's daughter, held in the highest of courts, defeated his tens of thousands, defeated a giant, literally played music, wonderful music for the king in his own chambers. And here he is, drooled down his beard, scribbling on a wall like a crazy man, hoping that the people he already defeated won't kill him. What a low spot. What a low stinking spot for David to be in. That's so heavy. I have to wonder if like the servants, it was really awkward for the servants. They're like, dude, Achish, check it out. We got David. We got David. He's in our city. We got him. And then they show up. Look, here he is. And he's like freaking out. And the king's like, uh, guys, he's a nuts. He's nuts. What are you talking about? Imagine, no, no, I swear he was mighty like four minutes ago. I don't know what's on. It's almost like something you see in a sitcom. Like it's too set up. It's too perfect. It's like the, the punchline. King walks in. So David flees, or is rather turned out from Achish. King doesn't want, um, King doesn't want any more crazies in his house, as he says. And then we see in 1 Samuel 22, 1 through 4, says that, so David left Gath and took refuge in the cave of Adullam. When David's brothers and his father's whole family heard, they went down and joined him there. So his family shows up. In addition, however, every man who was desperate, in debt, or discontented rallied around him. Yeehaw! <laughs> Woo, what an army. And he became their leader, about 400 men with him. Not one beautiful person in sight. All the social rejects. And by beautiful, I don't mean physically. They might have been gorgeous. I don't know. But they're no socially beautiful people. All the rejects. They've got no money. They're angry. They're cranky. They're basically already feeling super low. They're discontented. And they're brought to a man who is in a super low place. And God's like, I want you to pour into them. It's like, what energy would I have there? I don't know. Somehow David has enough energy to pour into them, as we'll see as we go further. By the way, the, the uglies, that's how Jesus rolled. His 12 apostles, ragtag bunch of uglies. Like, that's just how it was. And God rolls that way still. In verse 3, of uh, continuing on 1 Samuel 22, from there David went to Mizpah of Moab, where he sat 
uh, or said to the king of Moab, please take my father and mother uh, and stay with, uh, with you until I know what God will do for me. So he left them in the care of King Moab, of Moab, and they stayed with him the whole time David was in the stronghold. So at this point, this reveals to us that David doesn't know what God's going to do. He specifically says, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm not confident that I'm going to be safe. I'm not confident that you guys are going to be safe. Let's go to Moab. I'm going to put you in the safety care of uh, the king of Moab because I don't know what's going to happen. So it's not like there's some confidence that everything's going to be okay. In fact, he's preparing for the worst, possibly expecting the worst. So what does he do? He writes Psalm 34, which is crazy. If you have your Bibles, you can open up. We'll read just the first couple of verses of Psalm 34. This is um, while he is with his men. Uh, it's described in probably in your Bible as concerning David when he pretended to be insane in the presence of Abimelech, who drove him out and he departed. In the context of all that that's happening, here's what he had to say. I will bless the Lord at all times. All times is pretty significant if you consider the space he's in right now. His praise will always be on my lips. As in the circumstances don't matter. His praise is still on my lips. I will boast in the Lord. The humble will be glad, will hear and be glad. Why will the humble be glad? Think about it. David is saying this, boasting this from a humble place. He is currently right now in a humble place himself. David has lost all of his former glory. He is now being hunted by the king. He is now an outcast. He is actually hiding from the people he defeated already. He is no longer with his wife. Everything has been stripped from him in a worldly sense. He is in a humble place, sitting in a cave with all the uglies. It's literally his life now. That's what's happening. Humble place. No more golden harps and glory. <laughs> That's why the humble will be glad. Because David is boasting about something that is available to anyone, literally anyone. No matter where you are, this is available to anyone. So, of course, the humble will be glad. David himself was just a shepherd boy. Not only that, even in his own house, before all the glory, even in his own house, dad who should love him, mom who should love him, even his father, when they showed up asking for sons, he's like, here are my sons. They're like, don't you have one more? He's like, uh, yeah, he's a shepherd boy. Like, don't worry about it. Yeah, it's just David, just David. Like, anybody but David. <laughs> like, literally his own dad. Like, thanks, Jesse. Like David, son of Jesse, the guy who didn't believe in me. Like he's out there shepherding the sheep and his own dad is like anybody but him. I mean, that's where he came from. David is somebody who started from a humble place, experienced the Lord, and has seen that God is good. He had already experienced what it was like to follow God. Now, some would say that following God was no good. After all, look where it landed him. This is another thing that that, that uh, friend of mine I've been mentoring um, said to me. He's like, oh, I've been to church. It didn't do anything for me. You know, I've got, he's got all sorts of messed up, 
past people who were in his life, I'm trying to be vague on purpose for his privacy, but people in his life who were super messed up. And he's like, it didn't give me anything. I got nothing from it. And you could look at a passage like this and say, what did David get? He got nothing from it. Followed God, look where it landed him. At this point, it looks like David's life and everything he fought for is over. And sometimes I think we struggle. I think we struggle to identify with David in the place that he's at because we know where he's going to be. We know the whole story, right? So it's easy for us to look at this and not think of David as being in the lowest, darkest moment of his life up to this point. Because we know that he's going to come out on the other side of it. We know he's going to be king someday. We know that he's going to bring the presence of God back to the city and dance in the streets with all the joy and might in his body. We know all those wonderful things are going to happen. But he didn't know that right here. He wrote this when he had no idea what God was going to do to the point where he took his family to Moab because he had no idea what God was going to do. And he's singing these praises. If I were right here in David's shoes, I think about what I might what I might do. And I might be wondering where I went wrong. This is a mistake that um, I don't think I'm alone in making. I think oftentimes, following the Lord, if we end up in a bad spot, the first question is, what did I do wrong? Why am I here? God's not blessing this. God blessed this beforehand. I was in this blessed, wonderful place, blessed beyond all imagine, and David's David's situation. All this blessing, and now all of a sudden it's been ripped away, and now I'm cursed. I feel like a curse. I'm sitting here in this dark curse. What happened? What did I do wrong? That's probably what most of us would be feeling in David's shoes right now. And he says, praise the Lord. David isn't shaken, even as he's hiding near the city of people he once defeated. Look what he says in verse 3. Proclaim the Lord's greatness with me. Who's he calling to? That would be the uglies in the cave with him. Proclaim the Lord's greatness with me. He's leading from the front. He's saying, hey, I'm praising God. Praise with me. Join me in praising him. Let us exalt his name together. He's identifying with them. Let's do this together. We are absolute brothers. You're not uglies in my sight because you're not uglies in God's sight. I sought the Lord and he answered me and rescued me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant with joy. Their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried, speaking of himself, and the Lord heard him and saved him from all his troubles. Saved him from all his troubles? He's sitting in a cave. What does he mean by that? Got a lot of troubles, it looks like. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. This is what David is not only proclaiming, he's calling others to proclaim with him. See, David is a natural-born leader. He just naturally leads. That's just who he is. Whoever he's with, he's going to lead them towards the Lord. That's just his personality. God's gifted him that way. He's at one of the lowest points in his life, and all these uglies that God brought to him, he says, I'm going to pour into them. I'm in the lowest spot already. I'm going to use what energy God has given me to pour into them and point them to God. By the way, this psalm was constructed in such a way, obviously they wouldn't have, um, likely wouldn't have a way to transcribe this down in a cave or read in a cave. 
and this was transcribed in such, or this was made in such a way that every verse started with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet so that it would be easy to memorize. He designed this so that they could memorize this so that it would be locked into their heads, locked into their hearts, and that they could recall it. And he chooses to lead by example with worship. Proclaim the Lord's goodness with me, he says. And then further on, he gives a guarantee in verse 8. He says, taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the person who takes refuge in him? You who are his holy ones, fear the Lord. For those those who fear him lack nothing. Young lions lack food and go hungry, but those who seek the Lord will uh, will not lack any good thing. Taste and see is a confident statement, as I said earlier. It's not that he's saying, taste God, see God, etc. He's saying, if you taste God, you will see that he's good. That's the context behind it. It's a confident statement. And all the individuals in the cave with him, the, the social castouts, the untouchables, all these heathens in the cave with him, he is calling to them saying, experience God. Know God in an experiential way. Experience God, and you will see that he is good. You can see why this is important to me right now as I'm mentoring this kid who has never experienced God. You see, that's his problem. He sits in, he sat in chairs in a church and he watched other people experience God and he felt the energy in the room. And maybe that was exciting to him at some, at some point in his life. He, he told me that it was, in fact. But he didn't have his own experience with God. He watched others experience God, seemed cool, tried it for a while, didn't experience it himself and gave up. He hasn't experienced God yet. You can't see that God is good until you've experienced that he's good. David says that you will lack no thing. He says even later on, he'll say even lions, or yeah, right there in verse 10, young lions lack food and go hungry. Mighty lions lack food and go hungry. But those who seek the Lord will not lack any good thing. David is lacking a lot of things that the world calls good right now. He's not talking about things that are that are comforts. He's talking about He's talking about things of God, things that are actually good. There's a lot of things that are called good in this world. Most people are trying to find what is actually good. David is claiming to have found that, what is actually good. I think any mature adult in this room would agree, or watching online, that there is a difference between things that feel, taste, look, smell good, and things that are actually good. Not all things that look, feel, smell, taste good are good for you. I don't just mean food. I mean just life experiences. Out of selfishness, we can cause harm to others, and it can feel good. But it's not actually good. We know this to be true. David claims to have found what is actually good. And he says it's the Lord. Now Satan calls from the other end. Satan likes to counteract whatever God is doing. He is in perfect opposition to God. And by perfect, I mean he's perfectly trying to oppose him. Obviously, he sucks at it because we all know he sucks. He's going to go to hell. That's that's his end. Sorry, Satan. It's rough, but that's what it is. He's calling from the other end. He says, try the world, and you'll see that it feels good. That's what you'll see. That's what he claims. He's been doing this ever since the garden, Genesis 3, ever since Eve. Think of Eve 
trying the fruit for the first time. He literally told her, taste the fruit and you will see what God sees and you'll be like God. Almost literally saying taste and see. I paraphrase that passage. But that's what he does. There are only two forces at battle in this world on a spiritual sense. Um, I would say actually in the physical sense too. And those two forces, one says taste whatever the world has to offer and enjoy yourself. And the other says taste what the Lord has to offer and see what is good, what is actually good. David is one who is on the side of the Lord. He not only says, try the Lord, he also says how to do that. He also tells us how to try the Lord. Because that's kind of the, that's kind of the question for a lot of people. In fact, um, that, that is a question that this kid has, has raised with me before. He's like, well, what do you mean experience God? How do you do that? And it's kind of hard to come up with an answer for that. How do you experience God? How do you experience God's goodness? There's, there are many who will pray and hear nothing because they don't know how to talk to God as if he's in the room. There are many who will ask for things from God and he won't give it to them because in his perfect will, that's not what's actually good for them. So it can be kind of hard to explain to somebody how you experience God. He's going to give us a definition in just a second, but before we get there, verses 11 and 12 says, Come, children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord, who is someone uh, who is someone who desires life? He's calling, who desires life? Loving uh, a long life to enjoy what is good. Who's seeking this? That's who he's trying to speak to. David's like, I want to talk to you who are seeking things that are actually good, who is done with the stuff that looks good, doesn't satisfy. I want you and I want you to listen to me. That's exactly what he's saying. And so when God gives us a passage like that, we should be paying attention. Because I think all of us at some point in our life have experienced something that's supposed to be good and then it just left us empty. He's going to give us an answer as to what is actually good. He's like, you want something that's worth it, worth the fight, worth the effort that this world is, that this life is? Let me show you what is good. I have experienced it myself and you can experience it too is what he's saying. And he gives us a really, really short list. And this list has to do with his specific situation right now. In verse 13, he says, Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceitful speech. Turn away from evil and do what is good. Seek peace and pursue it. And I want to hone in on that. Seek peace and pursue it. This hit me so hard this time that I, I read through this because typically when I read through the Psalms, I don't, um, most of my reading time is just uh, reading large portions of scripture to kind of get through it. Study time though, I hadn't hit this Psalm yet. And so studying through this, thinking, of, looking at and thinking about where David just came from, this hit me so much harder. That's why I love the fact that there's context behind this Psalm. Seek peace, he says, and even pursue it. This man's father-in-law, who is the king, is literally trying to kill him. Literally, not figuratively. I think, in my experience, most father-in-laws have said this to their son-in-laws or future son-in-laws. I'm going to try and kill you. Literally, I've like most, in my experience, have said that. Usually, uh, mostly, mostly just a joke. Like mostly, just you touch her. You're dead. Like, that's just something, uh, yeah, it's uh, Nathaniel's nod. Like, uh-huh, yeah, we all know. <laughs> we know Mike's a lion. But, uh, 
Michael do it too, careful. Anyway, uh, <laughs> followed by me. Uh, but Saul is, <laughs> Saul is actually loading the shotgun. It's not a joke. He's actually, I mean, he's ready. Like, I'm taking you out, David. That's literally what he plans on doing. Not a joke, not figuratively, not a threat, not a warning. That's what he's trying to do. He wants to take David out. And wrongfully so. David didn't do anything wrong. I mean, he's a sinful man. He does sinful things. But in this case, he has not wronged King Saul. He has saved the people by following God's command and running after a giant with a rock, paraphrased, killed his ten thousands to defend the children from the surrounding armies. David has done nothing wrong. He's done everything good for Saul, even sang him pretty lullabies to give his headaches a rest. I mean, no excuse. And he says, seek peace and pursue it. David's words here have authority because he has experienced what it's like to seek peace. In this moment, he is seeking peace and pursuing it. If you think about his position before the people right now, they basically worship him. He killed Goliath. He killed tens of thousands. They sing songs about him in the streets of how he killed his tens of thousands, whereas the king, yeah, the king only killed a few thousand. David killed his tens of thousands. They literally love this guy to the point where the king of Gath, notice the king of Gath, or the, the servants of the king of Gath thought that David was king. They called him king. Isn't this David king of the Israelites? That's literally what they said. They thought he was king. This is the power and notoriety and force that David has behind him to the point where if he wanted to, and he'll have a lot more opportunities too. We know that many times he has the opportunity to kill Saul and he doesn't. He could have defeated Saul at any time. He had the people behind him. He had the Lord behind him. He had Goliath's sword, which he took from Goliath. And he didn't incite anyone against Saul. Not one person. Not one person. He didn't incite a soul against Saul, even though the people loved him and almost definitely, almost definitely would have followed his lead against Saul. Just about anybody would have been like, oh, David's stepping up. Let's go. Let's go. I'm with him. I'm with David. You see, David experienced God's way. And although it led him into a harder place, he knew that it was good because he experienced it. He sat in that cave and he thought about all that was going on. And he knew the decision he made to honor the Lord instead of rising up against Saul was actually good. He sought peace, and it was worth it, even though it was hard. It was so hard. Those of us who have experienced, and probably everybody in this room, who has experienced doing something that was harder because it was the right thing to do, know what that's like. It's actually good. And the amazing thing is God empowers us to do this. It's not just a command. He gives us the Holy Spirit to empower us to do this. We are able to seek peace even when the other side is in the wrong. Even when it's going to cause us harm, we're able to do this. And it's hard to do in the moment. So hard to do in the moment. But it's so worth it. He gives us this confident encouragement 
Um, for any that like him are stuck in a cave with the uglies, he gives this encouragement, this, this, um, this joy, this guarantee. He says this in verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry for help. God is not missing. He hears you. He sees you right now. The face of the Lord is set against those who do what is evil to remove all memory of them from the earth. God's in full control. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears and rescues them from all their troubles. The Lord is near the brokenhearted. He saves those crushed in spirit. One who is righteous has many adversaries. It's a promise. Those of us who are seeking righteousness will have many adversaries. Again, that's a promise. And we're seeing, we've, my life, I'm still fairly young. I've seen it a lot. This is true. But the righteous cry out and the Lord hears. It says, the Lord rescues him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Speaking of us as his bones, of course, he protects them all and not one is broken. God has us completely. He has our soul. He has our salvation completely. It's not dependent on us. It's not dependent on our actions in this world or anybody else. God has them. Once we've given our heart to him, once we have accepted him as our Lord and Savior, that's it. David understood this on some level before even the cross. He knew that because he was in God's hand, he was 100% taken care of, even if it meant he was going to die. Because again, he sent his family to Moab. He wasn't sure he wasn't going to. And yet he knew he was in God's hands, and that, that's all that mattered. Delayed gratification is something that every human has to learn at some point. It's um, something that is known as being tough to teach to kids uh, in general because it's, it's hard, especially at a really young age, portions of the brain haven't actually developed enough to um, understand the concept of I'll get this later if I work hard for it. It's something that's hard to teach to kids. It's a very mature attribute. It's something that every adult should count amongst their, their, um, their tool belt, if you will. Delayed gratification, working to get, working hard to get gratification later. This world has conditioned us, each generation more so, as we go forward, especially with the introduction of technology of instant gratification. And I know this is an old subject pastors have been talking about since the invention of the microwave, <laughs> but we've come so much farther still. And there is instant gratification. You whip out your phone, something is going to grab your attention almost immediately. Something that wants your attention. Something that wants to distract your mind towards it to give you instant gratification. You don't have to sit bored anymore. You can just be gratified. Instantly. By the way, as a, as a, um, a strong encouragement that Mike gave um, about a year ago, he was talking about how to actually clear your mind of all of the distractions. And he was talking about how impactful it is to just sit there with nothing on around you and to quietly clear your mind, not to lead God in prayer, not to um, lead, because we do that a lot. We pray for what we want. It's like naturally what we do. 
not to um, push for things, but to just clear our mind and hear from the Lord. Just clear our mind completely of all the distractions and hear from the Lord and just sit there and wait. Um, and I can tell you, I, I tried it, and it's harder than he said. And he said it was really hard. <laughs> Your mind just completely gets bogged down by all these things that want to take you on rabbit trails, that want to lead you towards something. I was like, it's hard to even think about doing nothing because then you're thinking about doing nothing, and then your mind has that in it. And you start seeing like the actual like light patterns on the back of your eyelids, and you start thinking about those and how they look like a Rorschach test. And like it's, it's all these weird things that go through you. It's so hard to clear your mind. It's impossible almost, but it's not. And I can tell you from experience, I tried it once, and um, God did something really special for me. He did something crazy special for me that blew my mind. Um, he, he, I all of a sudden had a sense of his presence, and he just sat there. And I sat there, and Mike was like, if you... If you're quiet and you listen, God will speak to you. And in my case, God didn't. He said nothing. <laughs> he just sat there. And I was just like, oh, this is really weird. I'm just like very aware of God's presence right now. And he's saying nothing, no correction, no direction, nothing. And it was this weird moment. And it, and it, was, it all of a sudden took my mind back to being a kid in those times when I would um, wake up with my parents early in the morning before my sibling. I have a bunch of siblings. There's five of us. I'd wake up every now and then I'd wake up before all my siblings and I'd sit with my mom or my dad while they're on the couch and they'd be drinking their coffee and reading the Bible. And it, it felt so good to just sit there with them, to just sit there with them. And Mike actually shared the exact same thing with me from the opposite perspective as a father. He said those are some of his favorite moments, just sitting there, not even talking, no correction, no direction, no teaching, no do this, do that, just sitting there together. And the Lord did that with me, and what he showed me through it is he's a loving father. He's a loving father. Yes, he's judge. Yes, he wants to teach us things. Yes, he wants to correct us. But he's also just a loving father, and he just loves sitting with his kids. It's this crazy concept, but it's true. He's balanced. He just loves sitting with his kids. And I don't think we allow ourselves to um, clear our minds often enough to experience that. That was a big rabbit trail that I didn't intend on, but I just remembered this experience and I just had to say it because we we're talking about distractions. But that's kind of a distraction in a way. Uh, but but that's, a, that's a real thing. Uh, Mike said it. I tried it. It worked. So let's settle on that. Now, David is also um, honest about what the other side is actually selling. So he's gone through all this. Um, now that we're kind of off track, he's... Uh, giving the encouragement that the righteous will cry out, the Lord will hear, rescues those. Um, we talked about delayed gratification, that um, spending time with the Lord and just trusting what he says. It looks hard in, this, in the moment, but it's going to reap rewards and benefits in the end. Um, and even a lowly shepherd boy can be a man after God's own heart, just with a little of listening to God's will. So um, after all that, David is also honest about what the other side is actually selling, what the truth is. It may look good, it may smell good, taste good, all those things. But what he says in verse 21 is, evil brings death to the wicked. That's the goal of the enemy. Literally, his goal is death. That's what he wants. And those who hate the righteous will be punished. He wants us to do evil 
and hate what is righteous so that we will experience death and punishment. And by the way, for humans, he's 100% successful until we turn our heart to the Lord. Every single human who has ever lived, all the way back to the first, tried what is evil and are therefore condemned to death and punishment. Every single human. So Satan is selling death and punishment. And then in verse 22, he says, The Lord redeems the life of his servants, and all who take refuge in him will not be punished. That's what we experience. We all screw up. We all sin. We all have sin in our lives. And he's saying that God, those who turn to the Lord, those who are his servants, those wrongs will not be counted towards them. That's what we get to experience at the end. That's what our delayed gratification leads to, is at the end. We experience it in a small part here now on this earth, getting to witness that doing the right thing is actually amazing in the end. And someday in heaven, we're going to experience all of that in its complete fullness as our all of our sins are not counted against us. And David wants these men and women to know what is good. And he has confidence that if they experience God like he has, they will see. They'll see it. Experiencing God opens our eyes to what is good. Um, specifically, I want to leave you guys with, and I got to apologize, the slide is wrong. I tried to re-upload it in between services and I couldn't get service, but um, the slide's wrong. It's First John 3, 2. I want to leave you guys with these words. Um, the slide says 22, but it's First John 3, 2. John says this, and this actually, this talks about experience, talks about experiencing God in a real way and what that does to us. Because it's not just that we get to experience what's good. It changes us. And John says it this way, Dear friends, we are God's children now. And what we, uh, what we will be has not yet been revealed. We're getting a taste of it here. We have a down payment. Scripture is clear about that. We have the Holy Spirit. But it hasn't been fully revealed yet. We know that when he appears, and Christ hasn't appeared yet, but when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him because we will see him as he is. We are going to experience the Lord in his fullness, in his holiness, in his righteousness, and the call is going to be so powerful, it is going to, by no control of ourselves, rip our souls from our bodies, whether it's in the grave or on earth, alive still, rip our souls from our bodies and go straight to him and be forever changed into a perfect being because we experience him in his fullness. Experiencing God, seeing God, Gnoscoing God, if you will. It's not a real word. Gnosko is a word, but gnoscoing. God, experiencing God, literally changes us. We don't just get to experience what's good. It changes us and turns us into something that is more like God until that day when he shows up and we get to see all of it, and then, bam, we have no control. We're just suddenly perfect because of his power, because we get to see him as he really is. That blows my mind. Taste and see the Lord is good. And the more you see him, the more you will become like him. Gnosko God and see. 
that wraps it up. Gnosko God, experience God and see for anybody who's doubting. I don't know if anybody online is watching or anybody in this room who is doubting whether God is actually good and whether following after God and experiencing God is actually good or if it just leads to financial troubles and people calling you terrible things online, people hating you. I implore you, try God and see that he is good. I've experienced it. This man thousands of years ago experienced it. Try God and know he is good. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for um, the colorful ways in which you teach us. The imagery, the, the pictures, the fact that you created us with senses and then you use those senses to reveal yourself to us. Lord, we desire, we desire that now. We know we only have a down payment of what is to come, but we know that you walk with us and that you can empower us. If we're following you, you can empower us to get over anything. And there's so many things that we want to get over. There's so many, nobody in this room has lived an entire life without regret, without guilt, without shame. And we know that you don't count any of those against us at all because of Jesus' work on the cross. We thank you for it. We praise you for it. We worship you and you alone, Lord, because you and you alone are able to save. You and you alone are above all the junk going on in our world right now. We just want to experience you more. And if I don't say that tomorrow, Lord, remind me. I want to experience you more because I want to be more like you. I genuinely want to be more like you because I know that what you have is good because you are good. I pray that for anybody in this room who's struggling with the concept of following after you and experiencing you, that you would reveal yourself to them, that they would hear from you, they would experience you, that trying to live out your commandments to see what it is that you desire for this world, that they would experience you and understand that your way is good. It may not always be comfortable, but it is good. Reveal that in hearts today, I ask ask that you would do that, Lord. Use us in this time. Be honored by us. Be worshiped by us as we praise your name. And I think of David who said, proclaim with me. So I say this in the presence of all my brothers and sisters. Lord, we want to praise you. Let's praise him. Amen.